If you'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, we'll be reading Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. It's on page 1696 in your pew Bible. Feel free to continue to follow along um, as we go through it. This is the word of the Lord. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And Ananias, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then note this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. He is, quote, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, end quote. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they, could not see, since they could see the man who had been healed standing with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the miracle of healing, but especially we thank you for the miracle of healing our hearts. God, we are in desperate need of you, and we thank you that these physical, this physical sign points us towards the spiritual miracle of how you have called us to yourself. God, I pray that as we look at this Scripture, I pray, first of all, that you would change our hearts, that we would realize our need for you. I pray that we would bubble over in excitement, telling others the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and help us to do it boldly as we should. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard the term bubbling over with good news? I feel like this is something that often happens, uh, regardless of what age we are living in it, whether it's young children in our house right now, anytime someone loses a tooth, 
uh, something that can be as gross as that becomes super exciting. Or, you know, if you hear about an engagement, people are bubbling over with news. People stand there like this, you know, to show off their ring. I mean, there's all sorts of different things that we, we can't wait to tell the good news. If, if, if you're uh, a college student and you finally get a good grade after having a couple dry semesters, you're sure to show that one to your parents. You know, here it is, see? Uh, we bubble over with good news, with excitement. Facebook has started to do this. Right? Media. It's, it's people wanting to share things that are happening with their life, whether mundane or extraordinary. And, and, and exactly that is what's happening here. But the question is that I want to ask you this morning, do we bubble over with excitement? Are we showing off, so to speak, our Savior? Do we get so excited about who he is and what he's done that if somebody tells us to stop talking about him, we say, no, I'm not going to stop talking about him. Do we literally bubble over with excitement when we think about our Savior? That's what Peter and John were doing here. You see, because our expression of love is undeniable, because God loved us so much, our time with Jesus Christ should make us bubble over and sharing the gospel, but not just sharing the gospel, but doing so boldly. It is good news. Now, the context of this passage, this was the first days of the Christian church, but I especially want to point to something specific. There were three main groups of religious leaders that were alive during the time of Jesus. There were the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Now, is Kyle here? We're not going to sing the song, uh, I'm so sad, you see, if you're at Appalachia. We're not going to sing that song, but that's what it's talking about. These groups that were around Jesus when he was preaching. Now, the Essenes was a group that when they saw the corruption in Israel and when they saw uh, they, they ran off into the woods. Well, it was actually a desert at that time. But they didn't want to be around people. They thought that being around other people would corrupt them. And so they, it was a religious group that ran off and wanted to be alone. And that's exactly what they did. Hunters today think, ah, oh, yeah, that's me. Then there's another group that was called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the religious leaders that really cared about piety, but they also cared about God's law. So much so that it had come to the point where they had lost sight of what really mattered. They gave exact ways to make sure that you didn't break a single one of God's commandments. And they took pride in keeping these man-made rules. And what we see when Jesus interacts with this group, the Pharisees, he tries to point them back to the heart of the law, the purpose of why it was really there. You see, they'd become self-righteous and legalistic in their pursuit of keeping the law. When it came to the Sabbath, it had become a burden rather than a rest. When it came to salvation, it was just ethnic. It was just for their people rather than worldwide. When they thought about the Messiah, they were afraid because all of a sudden they were wondering, this Jesus whom we killed, was this the Messiah? And that is what Peter points them to. And then the last group is the group that's called the Sadducees. And there were people who were politically important. They, they, they were with the Romans. But the other big thing is they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They thought this life was all there was. There's nothing beyond this life, which is why they were so sad, you see. And these are the three main groups that are being spoken of here. I want you to imagine the newspaper in Jerusalem at the time. Granted, there was not a newspaper. But if it was going on just a few days ago, there would have been something about this Jesus guy being killed uh, and about this murderer who'd been released and about how... Uh, uh, the sun had gone dark, and oh, that was kind of scary. And there was this big storm, and there was an earthquake all happening on the same day. And then just yesterday, there was this miracle, and, and, and a paralyzed man was able to walk. And, and all of a sudden, the talk that's happening in Jerusalem is things aren't quite the way they usually are. There's lots of big news happening. 
in the response of two different groups. We, we saw these two different groups earlier in Acts chapter 2, but we see these same groups here today. One of the groups is made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but also the scribes and the temple guards. You see, when they hear Peter and John preaching, what do they do? They, according to verse 1, they put them in prison. It's in, it's in the evening. We'll take care of you later. So they stick them in prison. They didn't necessarily quite agree with Peter and John, whether it was because of the resurrection or whether because they felt guilty about having killed Jesus. The temple guard, it mentions them specifically, were kind of the number two man. The number one man was the high priest. He was the, he was the head honcho. He had lots of power. But the temple guard was the number two person. He was, the, he was the muscle, so to speak, of the temple. And they come and they arrest Peter and John because, number one, he was teaching and proclaiming Jesus. And number two, he was teaching about the resurrection. But also, if you still have your Bibles open and you look to chapter 3, verses 22 to 23, Peter and John, they warned them. They say, look, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from this people. And that warning served for this group of people. That's group number one, the people who were suspicious about Jesus, who didn't want to believe the message of Peter and John. Group number two is the 5,000 people who just became Christians, if you notice that in verse 5. In chapter 1, verse 15 of Acts, if you remember, they started with just 120 people. And then by the end of chapter 2, their number has grown to 3,000. And I hear it's 5,000. We're only four chapters in. Growth happened. How? It wasn't through big events. It wasn't through anything like that. What was it? Through public preaching, through preaching in the synagogues, and the attraction of believers gathered in fellowship, in homes, and caring for others. You see, people in the community looked at these Christians, and they saw their life is different. Something is different about them. And we see here, we're going to see later, literally it's because they'd spent time with Jesus. You could tell they spent time with Jesus. And that's what we see in the first four verses. You have these two groups. You have the group of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others. And then you have the group of those who followed after the apostles, who believed their message about Jesus Christ. Then when you get to verses 5 through 12 of our passage, you see Peter speaking before the Sanhedrin. That word Sanhedrin is just a fancy word for the group of religious leaders when they came together. Now, it's probably uh, this, this group had about 71 members, and they were the Jewish high court. So if you did anything really, really wrong, you had to sit in front of this so-called Supreme Court, so to speak, and they had the power. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, they had the power to pronounce you guilty or not guilty. And so they come and they ask Peter, who gave him the authority to do this? If you look at verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? In the Greek, the pronoun you is actually the last word. So it's sort of like saying, how do you think that you have the authority to do this? Now, they couldn't have the squiggly line in there or something. But having it at the end, literally, the emphasis is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? By what authority, by what power are you doing this? Clearly, they weren't listening, because in chapter 3, verse 12, he said... By what power, what authority they did this. When they healed the man who couldn't walk and when they healed him, they said, it's not because of us. It's not our godliness. What did he say? It was the name of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he says here. You see, in verse 8, Peter begins his response. But what's amazing, even though they did it in an accusing sense, he responds politely and respectfully, procuring goodwill. He says, elders. He says, rulers of the people. And note, it also says here that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember in the past we've talked about the evidence of the Holy Spirit moving is the preaching of the word 
and the service of the church. Here, Peter is preaching the word about the service of the church. He's defending himself by showing how the church is trying to serve the community. And he is filled by the Holy Spirit in telling the good news of Jesus Christ. And Peter starts out by saying he uses this good deed to challenge their imprisonment. Look at what it says. Are we being called to account for an act of kindness? Did you put us in jail for healing a man? And all of a sudden you can think about the Pharisees going, wait, wait, no, no, that's not why we put you in jail. But he's pointing to the fact that, I mean, we just healed a man. Is that why we're in prison? He shows not only that they healed a man, but it, Jesus was the means of the healing, making them even more guilty. You see, not only did they imprison the people who did the right thing, they killed the Jesus by whose power this man was healed. They're doubly guilty. As in other cases, he heavily depends on the Old Testament. And in this case, he just depends on Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a psalm that we read. We've actually sung it three different times today. What I want you to do is keep your finger in Acts and go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 118. Psalm 118 is quoted throughout the Bible, but this specific verse that he quotes happens in all four of the, uh, sorry, in the three synoptic gospels, and then also in 1 Peter. This idea of the cornerstone comes up again in, in, in the letter that, that Peter writes. And it's showing how what they had rejected, God had restored. Now, Psalm 8, 118 was sung at the rebuilding of the temple. That's probably the first time it was written, so after the exile. But it was also sung at the Feast of Tabernacles. If you, keep, if you look at Psalm 118, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 is actually a set of Psalms. It was those, those from 113 to 118, they were actually sung every Passover. It was part of Passover. It was quoted by the crowds as Jesus was riding the donkey in on Palm Sunday. It was quoted by Jesus at the Last Supper. It was quoted by Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's still prayed today when we read Scripture passages for the Lord's Supper. It was sort of like Christmas passages. Whenever we read uh, a Christmas passage, literally, we've heard it so many times that we could finish it, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We, we sing, we, we hurry, hear it read every Christmas. This was Psalm 118, 113 to 118 was something that they could have finished someone's sentence if they had started it. It was so familiar to them. But this section of Psalm 118 gives us a little picture into how ancient building projects occurred. If you look at Psalm 118, it talks about this cornerstone. And the cornerstone set up the entire building. This was the foundation. So once you put the cornerstone, everything else was guided by where this main rock started. We still do it today in some senses. You have to do the foundation before you do anything else. And if you mess up the foundation, everything else is messed up. So you have to get it just right. Here, instead of using concrete, they're using a rock. And that rock is guiding everything else that they are doing in this construction project. And the builders are wise and knowledgeable, according to Psalm 118. But there is this rock that God chose that they rejected. It doesn't serve their purposes. You see, God chose this rock, but the wise and the knowledgeable of the world came and looked at it and said, this doesn't help us for what we want for this world, so we're going to reject one and set up our own. But what this psalm is saying is that though they rejected it, God chose his people for a particular purpose. And then Peter interprets this in light of Jesus Christ being rejected by the religious leaders. You see, God established this cornerstone, and he was going to erect, what is he going to erect upon Jesus Christ? The temple, which is the church, upon Jesus Christ. And God chose Jesus to be the cornerstone by which everything else was guided. And what did the religious leaders do of the day? They rejected it in the same way. And so Peter shows 
that this was changed. You see, the word Savior, if, going back to the book of Acts, the word Savior was often used for a person who would free his people from a physical or political power. But here, it's in reference, Jesus Christ is our Savior. We don't just see that as freeing Israel from Rome. We see that as Him freeing us from our sins. You see, it changes the purpose of the cornerstone. This cornerstone wasn't just for the ethnic community of Israel. It was for God's people all over the world throughout time. So if you turn back to the book of Acts, that's why he references this passage. And even just as we read, not only does it talk about this cornerstone, but it talks about how we will exalt God because he is our salvation. And how did God bring about this miraculous salvation? Through Jesus Christ. So when they sang it at Passover, when they sang it at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were singing about Jesus Christ, who would come. And Peter is showing he is the fulfillment of this whole long line of promises. Every Passover, you've been praying for the Messiah. He came. He was here. He's the reason this man is healed. You need to believe in him. And so in verses 13 to 22, we see the Sanhedrin's response. We see the response of these Jewish leaders. Now, first of all, they're amazed. They're amazed at Peter and his speech. And the, when they, the reason they're amazed, the only way they can explain it is they say, oh, they were around Jesus. Look at verse 13. Literally, that's what they said. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Time with Jesus changes you. Time with Jesus changed them. And the proof was in, they had changed. You call yourself a Christian. Are you different than you were three years ago because of your time with Jesus? Because when you pray, you may bumble around in your prayers, but you're making an effort to talk to God. And when you sit down and read his word, you may not get through very many verses and it's hard to understand, but you work through it anyways because you know that God has communicated to you through his word. Do you do it with your family when you, when you pray together before you go to bed? When you pray with your wife or your husband? Do you do it in the way you interact with your coworkers? Do you do it in the way that people see you at school? Do they know that you follow after Jesus Christ? Do they know that you spend time with Jesus? If you look here in verse 13, literally what it says is they were amazed at their boldness. You see, they, had, they spoke as though they had authority. They weren't trying to curry favor. What's amazing, if you read Matthew chapter 5, for example... Uh, the way Jesus describes things. He says, you've heard it said, for example, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look after a woman lustfully, you've already sinned in your heart. Or then he says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you that if you hate a man in your heart. He was transforming the way of teaching. You see, for example, in scholarship today, and the Pharisees in, in, the, in Jesus' time period, what they would say is, this is the case, and let me show you how all these other people in the Targum and everywhere else agree with me. So you can see that what I'm saying is actually true. Jesus flips that on his head. Instead of showing what other people have said, he says, you've heard it said, but that's actually not quite right. Because he points to the fact that, yes, there is this law of God, but there's the heart that matters. He completely transforms. And when he teaches like that, people were amazed that he spoke with authority. That's what the Gospels say. And then so here, they're amazed that Peter speaks with authority. Because all of a sudden, Peter isn't trying for the, for the Pharisees to think that he's smart or important. He's actually depending on the authority of Jesus Christ. The other thing that they're amazed at is that they were unschooled or uneducated and common. The Greek word there for common is actually idiota, idiot. This guy was just a fisherman. He'd never gone to school. 
and yet he was speaking eloquently. They were almost convinced that this Jesus was actually the Son of God. Second, the second response that these people, that the Sanhedrin has, these religious rulers, is they can't argue against a healed man. Verse 14 says there was nothing they could say, which is a common theme uh, throughout the Scriptures. You see, this notable miracle is undeniable, and it puts the leadership in an awkward position. I mean, they want to stop the apostles, but there's a man who hasn't been able to walk for 40 years, all of a sudden able to walk, and he's standing right there. Exhibit A. They can't just tell them, stop healing people, stop being nice. I mean, they can't do that. So what are they, what, what are they going to do? But they want to stop the disciples. Furthermore, we don't know exactly who was in this meeting, but if you think back to when Jesus was ministering, Jesus spoke to people who were likely in this meeting. In John chapter 3, you, what's John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When he says that verse, he's actually meeting with a man who was a religious leader whose name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus, after hearing Jesus, and he goes to see Jesus in the night because he doesn't want anyone else to know that he's meeting with Jesus. He may have been at this meeting, and he's thinking, I remember what Jesus told me, and maybe there was something to it. Or if you think about after Jesus was crucified, where was he buried? He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a religious leader. He may have been at this meeting. And scholars wonder, maybe even Paul, who was at this time called Saul, maybe even he was at this meeting. God was already beginning to stir in the hearts of these people that, I wonder, they're thinking back to the words that Jesus had said. But third, instead of believing in Jesus Christ, or instead of committing themselves to follow him, they go into damage control. In verse 18, they, they tell the apostles that they're forbidden to speak and to teach. You see, they couldn't punish the apostles. Why? Verse 21, what were the people doing? They were praising God. People were going nuts in the street, in a good way. They were saying, God is amazing. He just healed this man. What I encourage you is, when we sing songs, when we praise God, critics of Scripture don't know what to do with it. People have poured over the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who wrote during World War II. Uh, he was a German who followed after Jesus Christ. People cannot understand how a Christian, how anyone, could write words of such faith as he did. See, when we praise God, people don't know what to do with it. That's the best response to someone who doesn't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here we see that they could not punish the apostles because the man that they had healed was over 40. And this sign of healing ends up being the last phrase of this passage, but it shows you that that sign, this man being able to walk, convinced them that something was different. But remember, the sign of healing pointed them towards something else. It wasn't just being healed on the outside, but being healed on the inside, of being transformed, of being made whole. And so the apostles, they literally say, it's up to you, but we cannot stop teaching. And what's their reason? They cannot but proclaim what they have seen and what they have heard. So is that our response? That we cannot help speaking? Does our experience with Christ spill over into daily conversation? When you have your quiet time and you learn something, do you just get super excited and people start talking about something else and you say, i got to show this to you? When you have conversations with your friends, do they end up turning in the direction of the gospel of Jesus Christ? First of all, I'd encourage us, we might not be walking around healing people. I certainly am not. But remember that each miracle, Jesus healing the paralytic, for example, was imagery for God making a sinner whole. Do your actions, do my actions, point others, even inside of this church, 
towards the love of Jesus Christ? Or do your actions, your words, your demeanor even, push people away from wanting to know the Savior? When people look at you, do they say, that guy, he, that girl, she spends time with Jesus. You see, you have been with the Savior. Even if it feels like it's been years, you're different because of it. Continue to pursue that time with Him. Secondly, do you actively seek to speak about Jesus Christ? Does your amazement at the Jesus of the gospel spill over into your conversation? Do you get excited about sharing different things that God has done or is doing in your life? Have you ever had that friend who every phrase that is said, they make it an innuendo for something else? Like you just say any phrase and go, oh, I don't know. no, I was just saying something ordinary. And everything you say, they try to twist it to, to, to say something else. To be usually it's jokes or to do that. Have you ever met somebody that does that but flips it on its head and does it? for the gospel, who everything that it said, oh, it's really nice weather outside. Yeah, God's really blessed us. Oh, this game this weekend. Yeah, but, you know, isn't it incredible that God's really blessing you? You know, I mean, literally, every, everything they end up turning it's towards who God is and what he's done for us, and does that happen to us in our conversation? Do we turn every part to show that God is with us? But my third encouragement to you is to praise God. Even the harshest of critics, the Pharisees, who knew the Old Testament backwards and forward, they knew what was the middle letter of the Old Testament, for goodness gracious. But they did not know what to do in response to this Jesus. They had so forgotten their true love for who Jesus was and what God had called them to do. And they didn't know what to do when the apostles praised God. And they did not know how to respond to when the people praised God. And it's been that way throughout history. You see, nothing is as bad as God's salvation is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us, even as we sang earlier. And we thank you that Jesus Christ not only came to die for us, but that you've called us and you've given us the example of people who spill over with this excitement. God, first of all, I've got to be honest, there's times that I don't feel it. I don't feel the excitement. I feel tired. I feel discouraged. I pray that I wouldn't fix my eyes on the things around me, but that I would fix my eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith. And when I'm amazed at the wonders of the gospel and how you've called us from, from our sin and our wretchedness to yourself, God, that this would spill over in joy and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. God, I pray also that we wouldn't just dance around the issue, but that we'd go directly for it. That people would know that we are desperately in need of you through our words. God, I pray that you give us opportunities to share the love of Jesus Christ with others. Give us that joy. Give us that desire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.